Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler, Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. First off, I want to give a shout-out to Lee Carlos Cunningham over at the Raw is Nitro podcast. The episode we recorded together, which covers the May 27th, 1996 episodes of both Raw and Nitro, is now available, so definitely be sure to check that out. The episode's about two hours long, and I thought it was actually really great, so chances are, if you like this podcast, you're going to like that one as well. I'll put a link to it in the episode description of this podcast so you can just click on over, but please be sure to subscribe to the Raw as Nitro podcast because it's really great. Definitely check it out. Alright, so with that being said, let's get into this week's episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast. However, before we get into Monday Night Raw, I want to make a quick pit stop and discuss the previous night's episode of Sunday Night Heat, which aired on March 7th, 1999. Why? Well, for starters, this episode of Heat ends up being the most watched episode in the history of the show, garnering a 5.1 television rating, the only episode of Heat ever to do higher than a 5 rating. And I have to say, that's particularly surprising because this isn't even one of the episodes of Heat which functions as the pre-show for a pay-per-view. For comparison's sake, the live episode of Heat which airs before WrestleMania 15 ends up getting a lower 4.7 rating, so go figure there. And the second reason for my detour into this episode of Heat is because it features a rather notorious match, the Acolytes vs. Public Enemy. Now, most of the accounts I've read about this pretty much say the same thing. Public Enemy agreed to be put through a table at the end of the match, resulting in a disqualification and continuing their feud with the Ministry of Darkness. If you listen to the past few episodes of this podcast, you'll remember that Public Enemy had already been feuding with The Brood since they started in the WWF two weeks ago. So essentially, they agree to the table finish, but then, shortly before they're about to go out for the match, Public Enemy tell Bradshaw that they don't like the finish and want to do something different. JBL actually wrote a blog entry about this back in 2013, and, if you believe him, Public Enemy told him they wanted to change the finish while they were in the gorilla position as their music was playing before they were about to go to the ring. Now, of course, that's JBL writing that, and both members of Public Enemy are obviously no longer around to tell their story, so believe what you will. But basically, Public Enemy, these new guys in the company, are throwing their weight around a little bit, and, well, let's just say the Acolytes aren't exactly fans of that. So when it's time for the match, what follows is an absolute squash with Bradshaw and Farouk beating the shit out of Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge, including legitimately stiffing them with several weapons. And the worst example of this is when Farouk holds up Rocco and Bradshaw absolutely clobbers him with a steel chair to the skull. Just take a listen. Public 
enemy is, I mean, they could have been beaten a long time ago. I don't know what the count out is on this. I don't know if the referee's afraid to count. Oh, gosh, look at that chair. Imagine what that does to the human skull when it hits. So Johnny Grunge does eventually get booted from the ring apron down through a table on the arena floor, so it appears that Grunge actually did agree to that table spot after all. Eventually, referee Jimmy Corderas just calls for the bell, and by the time he does, Public Enemy has legitimately gotten the shit kicked out of them without even landing a single move in the match. Now, okay, let me just give my quick take on this. I understand that Public Enemy might have come to the company thinking they were hot shit since they had pretty good runs in ECW and WCW. Maybe their egos were a bit too big. Fine. That doesn't mean you go out there and bludgeon the fuck out of them just because you don't like their attitudes or you consider yourselves bullshit locker room leaders or whatever the fuck. Last time I checked, wrestling was still a work and the goal is to not hurt your opponent when he's trusting you with your body. Now don't get me wrong, I can understand being a little snug in the ring, working a bit stiffer. Totally get that. Totally fine. However, this match was not that. This match was two guys going out to the ring with the sheer purpose of beating the shit out of two other guys. And as we've heard from many stories about JBL at this point, it's completely in character with his personality. So once again, fuck him. If he wants to shoot, hey, since Bart Gunn is back now, maybe they can send him out there to the ring, and we'll see how much of a tough guy JBL is when he gets his ass knocked out again. Sorry, sorry, that's just fantasy booking on my part there. Ugh. But I'm not going to end this Sunday Night Heat recap on a down note, because there is one more thing to cover, and it is a Tiger Always Sing, How Low Will an American Go segment. Now at this point, you're probably wondering, why the hell am I covering a Tiger Always Sing segment from a random episode of Heat? Very fair point. Well, I suppose the only way it'll make sense is if I just play the clip for you here. It goes for about five minutes, but I think it's worth it, so let's take a listen. Oh, and for the purposes of this segment, you'll want to remember the tiger comes to the ring waving the flag of India, because that will come into play later on. The patriotism that you American peasants cherish deep in your hearts is renowned throughout the entire world. But I know, as well as all of you, that you American patriotism is a sham, a lie, a piece of camel feces, if you will. I resent that. Because like I've said and proven before, the only thing that you inbred American peasant Hicks cherish is cold, hard cash. He's always gotten people to do the acts he has asked. Therefore, tonight... I will offer anyone in attendance $500 cash See ya. to come in the ring and what can I think of? I come in here for 500 I bucks. I got it. Blow your nose. I can do that. Oh, in no. the American flag. I'm not doing that. Boy, oh, boy, putting a price Who on the... Putting the price on the desecration of the American flag. Uh-uh, doesn't work for me at all right now. Now it seems to me that we have a genuine American hero in attendance here tonight. Well, thank you very much, Tiger. Thank you very much. Terry, easy. I don't think he's, he's looking your way. He's a local boy. 
What do you and mean? he's an Olympic gold medalist. Oh, no. Well, there's Kurt, Kurt Angle. We saw him earlier. Well, this is rather embarrassing. Kurt Angle! A, a special guest. to come in the ring and prove your American patriotism. He's a VIP tonight here, Terry. Well, he's here as a, as a guest. Enjoy the action of Sunday Night Heat. I love that this kid is going to stand up here and make a stand for the United States of America against Tiger Ali Singh. Well, he made a stand at the 1996 Olympics, winning the gold medal in the 220-pound weight class, an Olympic gold medal wrestler. Do you understand what an achievement that is? I mean, he, he represented his country in the Olympics and came out on top. And Tiger actually thinks he's going to blow his nose in the American flag. For what I'm going to do, Kurt... The deal is very simple. I propose to give to you $500 cash for you to blow your nose in the American flag. Well, that's a lot of cash. No chance. Yeah, I didn't think so. Good boy. No chance? Well, Kurt, I think there is a really good chance just like you and the other American peasants, it's all about greed. And I got a lot of green to fill your greed. So what we'll do is up the ante. I'll give you $2,000 cash. Forget about it. Forget about it. Just like a peasant. What I'll do then is give you, Kurt Angle, $5,000 Oh, my goodness. Cash. Ten times the original amount say? offered. He's really looking to embarrass an American here. Come on. You don't have to really think about it. Taking a look at you, you know you need the money. All right. I'll do it. Oh, He'll do man. it. Hey, five grand. That's There's nothing to sneeze at. Take your nose. You can't do that in the flag. Blow it, baby. I think Tiger had this whole thing set up to try to humiliate Kurt Angle here. Well, this certainly will not be good for Kurt Angle's Olympic legacy, humiliating again, himself. Wow. There is no limit for how Wait a minute. Your American peasant He's got go. the Indian flag now. Honk. All right. Oh, wait a minute oh. now. Tiger now wielding the American flag. Boy, hits him with the flag twice, sends get up, fight! Kurt got up! All right! Tiger charging in, belly to belly suplex! Boy, did he elevate Tiger Ali Singh drive through the mat! Look at Kurt Angle standing tall for America! I love this kid! Listen to this crowd! Boy, he's igniting the whole crowd! Nice takeover, hip block! He's got Tiger Ali Singh on the run! Tiger backing away. What a great showing for Kurt Angle of the United States. This kid stands up for everything that's right. This kid is all right with me. Sunday night, he continues. Okay, so a couple things here. Number one, this is the first time Kurt Angle has ever been seen on WWF television, and the crowd is already cheering the shit out of the guy. Granted, this episode took place in Pittsburgh, his hometown, but man, he was already getting a big pop right out of the gate, as you heard there. Number two, 
Also speaking of things he did well right away, when Tiger attacked him, he nailed him with a perfect overhead belly-to-belly -belly suplex, so I think it's safe to say that this angle kid may have a future. Number three, my only real gripe here, did they really need to book a segment where Kurt Angle blows his nose in the Indian flag? I get the Tiger always saying is a dickhead heel, but America has no beef with India. It's not like the 80s and 90s when you'd have a foreign character from a country we didn't get along with, like Russia, Iran, Iraq. The relationship between the United States and India has always been pretty strong, so whatever. And number four, for you wrestling completists out there, this is also the on-camera debut of Karen Angle, as we can see her sitting next to Kurt in the front row when Tiger calls him out. I wonder if she talked to Jeff Jarrett backstage at any point. Oh well. So yes, I suppose you could say that this episode of Heat marks the WWF debut of Kurt Angle, but obviously that's a bit of a cheat because this is just a one-off. We don't get Kurt's official debut as an on-camera character for several more months now, but hey, I figured it was worth including this segment because it gives a brief glimpse of all that potential we'll eventually be seeing. Good times to come, for sure. So there you have it, all in all, a very eventful episode of Sunday Night Heat for reasons both good and bad. But now, with that having been covered, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, March 8th, 1999, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a domed building whose outward appearance caused it to earn the nickname the Igloo. And, fun fact, due to that Igloo nickname, it also ends up inspiring the name of their future hockey team, the Pittsburgh Penguins. I mean, penguins don't actually live in Igloo, so that's a bit of a tenuous connection there, but I guess I understand what they were going for. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include 12 episodes of Raw, 7 episodes of SmackDown, SummerSlam 1995, Unforgiven 2001, where the aforementioned Kurt Angle has, let's just say, a rather memorable night for himself, and one of the most legendary pay-per-views in WWE history, King of the Ring 1998, which featured the Undertaker-Mankind Hell in a Cell match. So we open the show with highlights from last night's episode of Sunday Night Heat, and I intentionally skipped this part in my Heat recap because I knew it would be covered in the Raw intro. Essentially, the show concluded with The Rock once again calling out Paul White, and, with them having a face-to-face -face in the ring, Stone Cold Steve Austin's music hit. Paul White then attempted to prove his loyalty to The Rock by walking up the ramp to head off Austin, but instead, Stone Cold came out through the crowd, snuck into the ring behind Rock, and hit him with a Stone Cold stunner. Needless to say, Heat is still going quite strong when it ends with a confrontation between Stone Cold and The Rock. So from there, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include Show me your implants I want to touch the rock's bottom These guys suck it with an arrow pointing to the left My mom's here The rock had a boob job Vince can't act Lisa, stop messing with my head Mr. Ass, I'll show you my ass if you show me yours. Eat a dick. My husband says if I go to one more WWF match, he's going to leave me. God, I'm going to miss him. JR lost his smile. Ouch. And perhaps the most disturbing sign I've seen so far, if it actually speaks the truth, I gave birth only 48 hours ago. Normally, I would think that had to be a joke, but it's so oddly specific that it almost makes me think... Yeah, I could probably see a diehard wrestling fan doing that instead of missing the show. 
So we officially begin with your WWF champion, The Rock, making his way to the ring. He grabs a mic, and he begins by telling us that he has a big problem with Paul White. Now, I have to say, I find this a bit weird because just two weeks ago on Raw, they did a segment where The Rock and Paul White were at each other's throats, but it turned out to all be part of a plan, and both men then beat the crap out of mankind. But now, here we are just 14 days later, and apparently we're supposed to believe that they really do dislike each other once again. So, okay then. So The Rock calls out Paul White, but instead, Vince McMahon comes to the ring. Vince tries to assure Rock that Paul White is a card-carrying member of the corporation, but instead, Rock says that he is a card-carrying Rudy Pooh candy ass. And that, of course, does indeed bring out the Big Nasty. So Paul White begins mocking The Rock, but then, well, we get a few other interruptions, so let's take a listen. Maybe I should take the bull and take his horns, and I'm going to shove them right up your... Oh! Oh, no. the second guest referee at WrestleMania 15. What I'd like to do is repay the favor. Now I got to admit, the last time we tried this, you guys pulled the best one on me. But if The Rock and Paul White really want to get it on, and I mean really want to get it on, then I will be more than happy to go backstage and slip on the black and white stripes. If you smell la 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 la, what the sock? Oh no! It's cooking. He can't. What? That sock stinks. Uh, Mick, with all due respect, I. I used to think your brains were scrambled from all the chair shots. Now I'm beginning to think there's a mental deficiency here of some kind. But nonetheless, you see, I have other plans for you other than you being a referee here tonight. You see, uh, you're not quite officially the referee at WrestleMania, but almost, almost. What? You will have the opportunity to be the second guest referee at WrestleMania. If you do one thing here tonight, and that is simply step into the ring and wrestle Stone Cold Steve Austin. Whoa! <laughs> yes, tonight! That's all you gotta do, mankind! Uh, however, Mick, I want you to know that there will be an unbiased guest referee in your match with Austin here tonight. Absolutely. He happens to be one who's over seven feet and 500 pounds, but unbiased. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, yes. Rock, to prove the point to you, the guest referee in the Austin-Mankind match here in Pittsburgh tonight will be Paul White. <laughs> McMahon is a genius. 
That'll answer all your questions, all right? We can just drop this right after this match, I'll guarantee. And by the way, there's a special ringside seat right over there next to the king just for you because we want you to do guest commentary. There you are. Fasten your seatbelts. It's the rattlesnake. We don't need him out here. Stone Cold Steve Austin. Set to meet the Rock and WrestleMania. Let's go through mankind tonight. Yeah, with Paul White, the guest referee. Stone Cold's a ticking time bomb with WrestleMania less than three weeks away. When I stand up here and I see four jackasses laying down a bunch of rules that don't mean a damn thing to me. I'll be completely honest with you. I don't give a damn about none of you. You sit there and you say, oh, you're the special referee. You're the guest commentator. To me, it's all a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> i tell you this. I don't care who the special ref is tonight. I don't care who the special ref is at WrestleMania. I will tell you one thing. Stone Cold Steve Austin is going to WrestleMania. And when that match is over, you are looking at the next WWF champion. And that's the bottom line. The Stone Cold Sensor. So there you have it. Mankind will officially be named as the second special guest referee for the main event of WrestleMania if he faces Stone Cold Steve Austin tonight in a match where Paul White will be the special guest referee and The Rock will be the special guest commentator. Certainly, this is not at all overbooked, but I will admit that I'm intrigued. Back on the February 13th episode of Raw, they teased an Austin vs. Mankind match but never ended up delivering on it, so will we actually get it tonight? Stay tuned to find out. From there, we cut backstage, where we see the entire Ministry of Darkness walk into a random locker room. The Undertaker asks three guys, presumably local wrestlers I'm guessing, if they've seen the Big Boss Man. When they say no, he asks them to deliver a message to him, and the Ministry then proceeds to kick the crap out of all three of them. And Michael Cole once again shows us his commentary prowess when he yells, quote, The Undertaker sending a message to Boss Man! Boss Man! Not sure why he felt the need to say that twice, but clearly Vince approves of his commentary work since it's 2019 and he still has a fucking job. After a quick commercial break, we then cut backstage where Mankind is talking with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Strangely, Foley asks Austin to lay down for him tonight, and this only further confuses me because Vince clearly said in the opening segment that Mankind would only need to fight Stone Cold tonight. He never said that Foley would have to beat Austin in order to become the special guest referee at WrestleMania. This is almost as bizarre as last week when they established that Mankind would be the special guest referee for the Austin Kane main event on Raw, and then Earl Hebner ended up refing the match. At this point, just... Believe what you want to believe, folks. So we then go into the arena for our first match of the evening, and it is a Steel City street fight, D'Lo Brown versus one half of the WWF Tag Team Champions, Owen Hart, who is accompanied by Deborah. And when Owen and Deborah are walking to the ring, we get a quick cut right to some fans holding up a series of signs which simply say, Deborah, 
Show me your tatas. I repeat, they went out of their way to zoom in on that sign. We're definitely in a different era here, folks. That's for sure. Also, in case you're wondering why Ivory is not accompanying D'Lo to the ring, Michael Cole informs us that she suffered a concussion last week when Jacqueline jumped her from behind. Ah, uh, remember the days when concussions were just casually tossed in as part of a storyline? Good times. Good times. Now, since this is a street fight, as you would expect, both D'Lo and Owen do indeed come to the ring wearing blue jeans, which they tuck into their boots. I mean, that's just Street Fight 101 right there. And essentially, this match is no different from the usual matches we've become accustomed to seeing in the hardcore division over the past few weeks. Lots of brawling with occasional weapons shots mixed in. And in this match, the weapons of choice are Owen's tag belt, a cookie sheet, and what appears to be a filthy broom. I mean, you couldn't buy a new one for the match, you had to use a disgusting broom that was presumably being used to sweep up the arena? Gross. So toward the end of the match, with both D'Lo and Owen down on the mat, Jeff Jarrett walked down to ringside with one of his guitars. He then attempted to toss the guitar to Owen, but D'Lo intercepted it and nailed Owen in the head with it. D'Lo then went for the pin, referee Teddy Long made the count, and that was enough to score the victory for D'Lo Brown. I suppose the obvious question would be, why didn't Jarrett just break up the pinfall since it was clearly a no-disqualification match, but hey, attitude error logic. One other amusing side note from the finish of this match, when the guitar shattered over Owen's head, a piece of it actually landed in his mouth when he fell to the canvas, so we get a quality camera shot of Owen lying on the mat with a piece of wood between his lips. Pretty funny stuff. What was less funny, however, was the fact that the guitar shot busted open Owen's forehead. Not sure if that was a blade job or if it was accidental, but the King of Hearts was indeed quite bloody when they showed him after the match. But I suppose the takeaway here is that D'Lo Brown has now gotten some measure of revenge over the tag team champions after they took out Mark Henry at St. Valentine's Day Massacre and Ivory last week on Raw. So after that match concludes, we then cut backstage where The Undertaker is addressing the entire Ministry of Darkness in a hallway somewhere. With the big boss man likely arriving in the arena soon, Taker orders the Acolytes to guard the parking lot, Midian and Viscera to guard the backstage area, and the Brood to guard the front entrance. Personally, I don't know why Taker doesn't just tell the Brood to teleport boss man over to him like they did to Rocka Rock last week, but I suppose that's a whole other story. So from there, we then head back into the arena where a popular tag team has now reunited. So first of all, I guess that stint in rehab really worked out well for Road Dog, huh? Last week he came back and got a world title shot against The Rock in his first match back, and now one week later, they reformed the New Age Outlaws. Let that be a lesson to you, kids. If you want good things to come your way, get really messed up and go to rehab. And their opponents tonight are Al Snow and the WWF Hardcore Champion Hardcore Holly, who now has some brand new theme music... And I believe he ends up using this theme all throughout the Attitude Era, up until around 2002-ish, when he finally switches to another one. Truly a historic moment here tonight on Raw. 
So most of this match consisted of Al Snow and Hardcore Holly working over Road Dog, but doing that old disgruntled tag team standby of constantly tagging themselves in and pissing the other guy off. Until, at one point, Holly and Snow just started fighting each other, which allowed Road Dog to tag in Mr. Ass. Holly then made the mistake of turning his back on Al Snow, which resulted in Snow hitting him in the back of the head with, uh, head. And from there, Mr. Ass picked him up into pile driver position, Road Dog went to the second rope, and yes, they nailed Hardcore Holly with a spike pile driver, aka a move you will never see in today's WWE. Billy Gunn then went for the cover, and that was enough to score the one, the two, and the three. Your winners in their return match, the New Age Outlaws. However, the Outlaws barely had any time to celebrate because, just seconds after the pinfall was registered, the lights went out. And sure enough, the Undertaker and Paul Bearer then did indeed emerge from backstage and stand at the top of the ramp. Taker raised his arms to turn the lights back on, and when he did, the Ministry of Darkness proceeded to attack the Outlaws, Hardcore Holly, and Al Snow. And once they were laid out, Taker grabbed a microphone and said that tonight, the big boss man will come face to face with the Lord of Darkness. Now, I could be wrong, but I feel like this entire episode of Raw being built around the Undertaker confronting the big boss man could qualify as the biggest push the boss man has ever received in the WWF. I mean, it's possible. That's all I'm saying. So after a commercial break, we get a quick cut backstage where Jim Ross is talking to Dr. Death Steve Williams. JR tells him that he's not going to let the WWF treat him the way he's been treated, and Dr. Death is the greatest wrestler in the company. So mark your calendars, folks. On March 8th, 1999, someone actually uttered on a WWF broadcast that Steve Williams is the best wrestler in the WWF. I suppose that could be true since Steve Austin's real name is Steve Williams, but somehow I don't think that's what JR was going for here. And from there, we segue back into the arena where Jim Ross is now walking to the ring and he's carrying a bag. If you recall last week, JR returned to the WWF after a three-month absence, and he then proceeded to slap Bart Gunn in the face and have Dr. Death jump him from behind. So what does JR have in store for us tonight? Let's take a listen. And temporarily put JR's, JR's play-by-play well, career Well, folks, I guess I got some explaining to do. No, that's but before right. I get started, I'd like to invite Michael Cole to come up here in the ring and join me, please. Well, Michael... Go ahead. Go ahead. Enjoy this for a second. Be sure and look him in the eye, okay? King. No, go ahead. JR had a big problem last week with with Bart Gunn when Bart wouldn't look him in the eye. And a bigger problem with Bart Gunn because Bart Gunn knocked out Steve Williams in the brawl for all. Hold this. JR, uh, what's, what's, what's with the shopping bag? Well, you're obviously on top of your game. Great question. You know, folks, when I was uh, sitting home for three months trying to heal from this uh, Bell's palsy thing again, had a lot of time to think. And I sat there one day and I come up with a, a hell of an idea. Matter of fact, I believe it's going to be one of the most revolutionary ideas in the history of sports entertainment. Because you, you know, Michael, we're not in the wrestling business anymore. This is sports entertainment. So what I got here, folks, is a Red, Japanese, how they call it, a gi? What? There at the top. And uh, look at this mask. Uh-oh. Look at this. Isn't this a stroke of genius? 
This is the idea that the creative and marketing geniuses in this company came up with for a legitimate four-time wrestling All-American to wear in the ring, and I'm talking about Steve Dr. Death Williams. This is the biggest pile of horse crap that I have ever seen in my life. I can take it from here. Now, Michael, I've got a, a couple of things I'd like to address with you. When, you. when you first came here to the WWF, who was the guy, the first guy that went to you and said, if there's anything I can do to help you, let me know? You did, JR. Who was the guy that worked uh, overtime? We looked at tapes and we got you all ready to go and uh, to, to do your to your work on television. Who, who did that? You did. Absolutely. It's embarrassing. And, and what thanks did I get for it, Michael? You got the little moose on your hair, your little narrow ass. That's all, pretty boy. That's all well and good. I can't be that way. That's okay. But you went to the boys. You went to the office. You went to the executive producer. You went to everybody and said, well, you know, J.R. never going to be back. Look at his face. Hell, old J.R. would scare small children and animals. That's what you said, wasn't it? J.R. That's exactly what you said, so don't try to lie about it. So what I want you to do, I want to leave you with something that you will remember me forever and ever here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh! What? What the? Come on, J.R. Now, Michael, just like everybody else, you are going to learn to respect Jr. Now, drag your Yankee ass out of here to the back, because I'm going to go back to work where I belong at ringside. What has gotten into Jr.? So, as you heard there, Jr. reached into his bag and pulled out the outfit and mask which Dr. Death wore on Raw a few weeks ago when he attacked Bart Gunn during his hardcore match. And he then proceeded to belittle it because, well, it, it was pretty damn stupid, actually. He then turned his attention to Michael Cole, who he claims said, quote, Look at his face. Hell, old J.R. would scare small children and animals. Now, if that's true, I have to ask, how is J.R. the heel in this equation again? But anyway, we then get the highlight of the segment, and frankly, perhaps one of the greatest moments in wrestling history, because Jim Ross then proceeds to kick Michael Cole right in the balls. And I'm no Dave Meltzer, but I'm going to go ahead and give this segment six stars out of five just for that spot alone. So Cole then heads backstage, and JR goes over to the commentary table to reclaim his rightful spot. And by the way, the crowd is absolutely loving this. You can hear them loudly chanting JR in the background. But from there, we get a quick shot on the Titantron of Vince McMahon, of all people, telling the newly rehired Terry Taylor to go out to the commentary table and replace JR. And sure enough, just a few moments later, Terry does indeed confront Jim Ross. So let's listen to what happens from there. What's your, what's your business out here, Terry? Mr. McMahon asked me to get you out of here. So I'm asking you nicely, please do what the boss says. Well, I'll tell you what, McMahon has screwed me on many occasions. So you're just going to do what he says. Are you a little, what are you going to do, uh, Red Rooster? Gonna, what are you going to do, uh, get a little cocky? going to pet me to death? No, I'm not going to do so any what, of that. I'm going to ask you to do what Mr. McMahon said. I don't give a damn what you said or what McMahon says. The bottom line is I want to go to work. The Red Rooster's going to replace Jim Ross doing play-by-play. That's the ridic- most ridiculous thing that I've ever heard. Thanks, Doc. Let's get him out of here. Do it for his own good. All right, 
right, well, this ought to be an really interesting night. On a night, Ross is going to wrestle mankind. We're talking about WrestleMania, and the Roosters coming out here. A mid-card wrestler at his best who had a, a lousy one-loss record, on, and now you're going to be a play-by-play man. So, as if this segment couldn't possibly get any better, we then get JR mocking Terry Taylor for being the Red Rooster. Folks, we may be venturing into seven-star territory here, truly unprecedented. But eventually, Dr. Death Steve Williams comes down to ringside and asks JR to follow him backstage, so that is how we wrap things up here. Now, let me just say that these JR segments clearly have that Vince Russo mentality of, if it's going on behind the scenes, it'll be interesting on camera basically appealing to the internet smarks who know that Jim Ross wanted Dr. Death to win the Brawl for All, which I imagine had to be about 0.1% of the audience at this point in 1999. With that being said, I'm still enjoying this Jim Ross heel turn. Although really, is it still a heel turn at this point when JR is talking about being bullied by Michael Cole and the crowd is popping huge when he rejoins the commentary team? Really kind of seems like he's a babyface now, doesn't it? Oh well, shades of gray, I suppose. But from here on out tonight, we get the rare Jerry and Terry announced team, which sounds catchy, but in reality, uh, it, it ain't so great. And then, if you want to talk about a bizarre segue, as soon as that segment ends, we cut backstage, where Ryan Shamrock is making out with Goldust as a jealous blue meanie looks on. So for those scoring at home, in the less than two months she's been an on-camera character, Ryan Shamrock has been involved with Val Venus, Billy Gunn, and now Goldust. Honestly, I feel like she should probably set her sights a bit higher than the intercontinental title level, but hey, we all have our own fetishes. And after a commercial break, we then go elsewhere backstage, where Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe are dressed all in black and holding flashlights because Mr. McMahon told them to go find the Ministry of Darkness. And at one point, Briscoe says that he's nervous walking around in the dark because, quote, they got big rats running around here. And I had to wonder how much the owner of the igloo appreciated someone saying that their building is infested with rats on the most widely viewed program on all of cable television. Not a highlight for them, I imagine. So from there, we then go back inside the arena for our next match, Ken Shamrock versus Goldust, who is accompanied by the aforementioned Blue Meanie and Ryan Shamrock. So the match is pretty short, as you might expect, lasting less than a minute and a half. The finish came when Goldust set up Shamrock in the corner and prepared to hit him with Shattered Dreams, but he got distracted when he saw the Blue Meanie kiss Ryan Shamrock. Ryan reacted with disgust, or I guess I should say as close to disgust as she could manage, since she's a terrible actress. But the whole scene distracted Goldust, which enabled Ken Shamrock to hit him with a belly-to-belly suplex, and that was enough to score the one, the two, and the three. And after the match, the meanie attempted to jump Ken Shamrock, but Shamrock easily took him down and started beating the crap out of him. Unfortunately for Ken, that enabled Goldust to grab Ryan by the arm and rush off backstage with her, so Ken then exited the ring and ran off behind them. Gotta say, I have zero recollection of Ryan Shamrock ever hooking up with Goldust, but hey, I'm not going to question the booking genius of Vince Russo. From there, we then cut to a pre-taped vignette where Rodney and Pete Gass tell us a little bit more about their exploits in Greenwich, Connecticut with Shane McMahon. Whenever we're out with them, we know we're okay. Well, we're simply hanging out by Rolls-Royce of Greenwich. Right at the light, what happens? These beaters got to look at us and stare at us through the back seat. He goes, why don't you go yourself? I, what? Me? 
Mac Daddy, we got a problem up here. So Shano came out with his patented slapper foot action kick. Bang, wham, boom. So, oh, Shane was an animal. Our friend Willie Green, his dog got ran over flat by the neighbor. You know what? The entire town of Greenwich is going to pay now. Shane O'Mac driving down the road, flying with the F-250, taking mailbox after mailbox, pulling over once in a while just so we can have a battering ram to smash the rest of the mailboxes off. We were bored. We were the king of the town. Because we're rich punks that got tons of money, baby. And you know what? You can't do nothing about it. Now, it was kind of tough to tell there, but uh, did Rodney use the term beaners in that vignette? It kind of sounded like he did, but I wasn't 100% sure. If so, not cool, my man. Not cool. Also, just watching these first two vignettes, you can clearly tell that Rodney is the guy in the group who is really, quote-unquote, going for it with his over-the-top persona, while Pete Gass is much more ho-hum when he speaks. Basically, Rodney is the Shawn Michaels, and Pete Gass is the Genetti in this equation, is what I'm saying. I mean, obviously. And after commercial break, we once again cut backstage, where Patterson and Briscoe come across a door that they think the Ministry is lurking behind, but instead of actually doing anything about it, they just kind of bicker with each other. All right, then. So we then cut back into the arena, where it is time for our next match, X-Pac, accompanied by Triple H, versus Test, accompanied by WWF European champion Shane McMahon and China. So, remember last week when Vince McMahon said that Kane and China would be fired if Kane didn't defeat Stone Cold in the main event? And then the match ended in a no contest, so we had no idea if Kane and China still had jobs? Well, we get our answer here because China just nonchalantly comes down to the ring with Test. Quite the payoff there, huh? Such strong booking lately. And as for Shane, he actually goes over to the commentary table to join Lawler and Terry Taylor, and I've got to assume this is the only time in history we'll ever get this particular three-man booth. So at the start of the match, Test and X-Pac lock up, and right away we get an awesome spot as Test just picks up Pac from the lockup position and flings him right over the top rope. Remember the Test is still pretty early in his run here, and he hasn't had many matches on Raw, so X-Pac is doing a great job here establishing him as a real threat. And on that note, just about a minute later, Test nails Pac in the face with a big boot, which looked like it almost killed him. I mean, Test may have legitimately kicked Sean Waltman's face in here. It looked pretty damn painful. Eventually, though, X-Pac knocked Test down in the corner, setting him up in perfect position for the Bronco Buster. At that point, Shane got up from commentary and walked toward the ring, but Triple H cut him off and shoved Shane down to the floor. China then entered the ring and attempted to sneak up on Pac, but Hunter grabbed her by the feet and pulled her right back out of the ring. So X-Pac then did indeed hit the Bronco Buster on test, but while Hunter was distracted by China, Shane snuck into the ring and nailed X-Pac in the face with the European title behind referee Earl Hebner's back. Test then simply made the cover, and that was enough to score the one, the two, and the three. Your winner of the match, with a little help from his corporate cronies, Test. And after the match, Triple H started chasing Shane around the ring, but when he turned one of the corners, China nailed Hunter with a massive clothesline, knocking him down to the ground. Test, Shane, and China then celebrated as they made their way backstage, so it certainly has not been a banner night for Degeneration X this evening. However, once they headed backstage, Triple H grabbed a microphone, and he proceeded to say... This. That's it. I'm sick of this crap. What? What do you mean? China, 
tonight, right now, I am gonna come back there, I am gonna find you wherever you are hiding, I am gonna drag your ass into this ring, and in front of everybody here, I swear to God, I am gonna humiliate you in front of the world. What? So, uh, there you go. Triple H is going to find his ex-girlfriend, drag her out into the ring, and humiliate her. I suppose that's something we can all look forward to later on. Uh, hooray for man-on-woman violence, I guess? Hashtag things that wouldn't fly in 2019. From there, we cut backstage, where Patterson and Briscoe are still working outside of what they think is the room where the Ministry of Darkness is located. After a brief moment of hesitation, they proceed to kick down the door, where they find... The Godfather and two of his hoes. The angry Godfather then tosses the Stooges out into the hallway and punches each one of them in the face for good measure. Despite that humiliation, though, Gerald Briscoe does get a nice line at the end here where he asks Patterson, Hey, did you see that blonde? I thought it was pretty funny anyway. And speaking of the Godfather, that provides a fitting segue because, when we come back from commercial, it is now time for our next match, The Godfather, accompanied by those same two hoes, versus Steve Blackman. Or is it time for a match? Because before it can even begin, the Godfather has an offer for the lethal weapon. When's the match when Blackman turns his back? Better not turn his back tonight. Uh oh, what's that? Whoa! Speaking of back. You got your choice, first choice, mind you, of either one of these fine hoes for the whole night. Oh, and they really know how to take care of a kendo stick. That's the first time I've seen Blackman smile. And you know what? They know what to do with the lethal weapon. <laughs> Told you. Go ahead and take a look at him. Man, you like that, don't you, boy? Man. Take a better look. Now, come on. <laughs> Woo. Decisions, decisions. Ho, no, no, ho. What's it going to be? What? You want them both. I never said that he wasn't greedy. Next, they want him to throw in a free motel room. Well, listen up, super stud. If you want them both, you got both of them for the whole night. Look at this. Godfather in a generous mood tonight. Maybe the hoes are generous, too. Need any help, Steve? I cannot believe that Steve Blackman, the lethal weapon, took the hoes instead of a fight. I got newfound respect for this guy. So there you have it. In a bit of a surprising move, Steve Blackman, the world's most charisma-free man, turns down a fight, and instead opts to spend a night with two of the Godfather's hoes. He may be boring, but he's no dummy. Unfortunately for Blackman, however, as soon as he leaves the ring with the hose, Darren Drozdov jumps him from behind. Blackman and Draws then head back into the ring and start brawling, and the Godfather then helps Blackman out in taking it to Draws, but while that is going on, the lights go out. And then, yes, once again, the Undertaker's music plays. And much like what happened earlier tonight, we see Taker and Paul Bearer emerge from backstage, and, when the lights come back on, the rest of the Ministry of Darkness is now running into the ring to attack Blackman, Godfather, and Draws. Once those three jobbers are quickly dispatched, Taker grabs a mic and asks the boss man how many more innocent people are going to have to suffer while boss man is hiding from the Ministry. To which I have to ask, since when does the boss man care if innocent people get hurt? I feel like the Ministry could take down random victims all night long, and Bossman wouldn't give a shit. Taker then puts the capper on the segment by saying, quote, One way or another, Bossman, tonight, 
there will be a sacrifice. So there you go. Another sacrifice is planned for tonight. But hopefully this one won't involve Taker slitting his wrists and forcing someone to drink his blood. I mean, that's just not sanitary. So when we come back from commercial, China is now walking to the ring. She tells Triple H that he doesn't have to search for her because she's right here. And sure enough, that does indeed bring out Triple H from backstage. He walks into the ring and gets in China's face, but when he does, the lights go out once again. However, this time it isn't The Undertaker, but rather his brother, Kane. When the lights come back on, Hunter goes right after Kane, but China quickly puts a stop to that by grabbing Triple H's arms. With China holding Hunter, Kane then aims his arm toward Triple H, and he shoots a fireball right out of his hand. Unfortunately for Kane, Hunter ducks out of the way, so China gets nailed right in the face with the fireball. And honestly, this may be the best-looking fireball in wrestling history, because when they show a replay of this from an alternate angle, you can see that it really does nail China right in her goddamn face. Owie. So China falls down to the canvas, and even Triple H feels bad about this because he then goes down to the ground to check on her. However, Kane has none of that, so he immediately throws Hunter over the top rope and checks on China himself. Two EMTs then come to the ring to try and help out, but Kane then throws them out of the ring as well. Eventually, Kane just picks up China and carries her backstage as she puts her hands over her eyes. And after a commercial break, we get a quick cut backstage in the locker room where China is lying down in Kane's arms with a towel over her face as Kane gently pats her head to try and comfort her. Now again, I can't state this enough, that may be the best-looking fireball in wrestling history. I know a lot of wrestlers have used flash paper over the years to quickly light a quote-unquote fireball and toss it, but those honestly kind of look like shit. In tonight's case, this was clearly some contraption that Kane had preloaded in his glove to shoot a fireball out of, and it looked about a billion times better than a flash paper spot. Definitely go and seek this one out, because it looked pretty friggin' cool. I'm assuming there was some level of safety to it because China took a fireball right to the face and, spoiler alert, she was not blinded or disfigured for the rest of her life, so you can go back and enjoy the spot with that knowledge. And hey, props to China for even agreeing to take that spot in the first place. What a trooper. So from there, we go back into the arena where it is time for our next match, Luna Vachon versus someone making her wrestling debut, Tori and she's accompanied by your WWF Women's Champion, Sable. And, of course, Sable hogs the spotlight once she comes to the ring because she's holding a copy of her brand new issue of Playboy magazine. She joins the commentary team and hands the magazine to Jerry the King Lawler, who almost suffers an on-air heart attack 13 years too early. In fairness, though, I think every male wrestling fan at the time was probably in the same boat. So back in the ring, Luna pretty much just beats the crap out of Tori for about 30 seconds, punching her in the face and choking her. But when referee Mike Kyoto attempts to get Luna to stop, she refuses. So Kyoto quickly disqualifies Luna. Your winner of this quote-unquote match is Tori. So Luna yells at Sable and then heads backstage, and Sable then tells the commentary team that she's going to go check on Tori, so she heads into the ring. Sable takes Tori's arm... But then she puts her hand in Tori's face and shoves her down to the ground. Sable then kicks her in the ribs a few times before grabbing Tori's Sable Bomb t-shirt and ripping it off, leaving Tori lying there in her bra. Interesting that in a week where Sable is being featured in Playboy, the segment ends with 
Tori getting her clothes ripped off. You would think it would be the other way around, but hey, what do I know? I don't possess the booking acumen of Vince Russo. And also, by the way, more on Luna Vishan a bit later in this podcast. So once that segment concludes, we then cut backstage where the big boss man has finally arrived to the arena and only about 90 minutes into the show, too. Quite the reliable head of security. And when he arrives, he is immediately greeted in the parking lot by every member of the Ministry of Darkness. The entire faction then proceeds to beat the crap out of him, and we go to commercial. And when we return, we cut back into the arena where the Undertaker's music is playing once again. And sure enough, the Ministry does indeed drag Bossman out from backstage, and we see that one of those large Undertaker symbols is lying at the top of the ramp. From there, just like they did to Stone Cold Steve Austin back in December, the Ministry ties the Bossman to the symbol and raises it off the ground. And while they're doing that, The Undertaker has some ominous words for Vince McMahon. I don't know if you understand, McMahon, that one by one, your corporation will fall until there is only one. And then she, too, will be mine. Boss man, you can never rest in peace now. You have been sacrificed before the Lord of Darkness. This is awful. Now, I have to wonder, when the Undertaker says, she too will be mine, who is he referencing? I mean, the only female member of the corporation is China, but surely he wasn't talking about her, right? Hmm. But no time to ponder that, because with the boss man on the Undertaker symbol, he manages to break free from his wrist shackles and jump back down to the ramp. And at that point, the other members of the corporation finally show up, with Paul White in particular managing to take quite a few ministry members on his own. We then see Gerald Briscoe waving for someone else, and it turns out that he is signaling for a bunch of police officers to come after The Undertaker. Unfortunately for them, Taker single-handedly knocks out five or six of them all by himself, so if you're planning on committing a crime, I would suggest moving to Pittsburgh because their cops just went down like a bunch of bitches. Eventually, the corporation members all head backstage, leaving the ministry standing face-to-face with the large collection of police officers on the entrance ramp. Taker then whispers something to Paul Bearer, and, amusingly, Bearer then pulls out what appears to be an old-school Nokia cell phone. You know, one of those ancient ones that had the little antenna you could pull out of the top? Amazing. So we're not sure who Bearer calls, but while he's doing it, we get the rather famous visual of Taker raising his arms in the air, then bringing them down, which results in his symbol exploding and catching fire behind him. Taker then holds out his hands in front of him and allows the police officers to handcuff him, and at this point, he better hope Paul Bearer was calling an attorney on that cell phone, because assaulting a police officer in the state of Pennsylvania can get you a maximum of 10 years in prison. And after a quick commercial break, we cut backstage, where we see the cops loading The Undertaker into a squad car, but when they do that, Vince McMahon shows up on the scene. The chairman yells at Taker that he better stay in jail, because if he doesn't, Vince is going to get him when he gets out. One of the officers then warns Vince that he'll have to arrest him too if he doesn't stop bothering him, so Vince backs off, and we see Taker smiling in the back seat of the car. 
And I have to wonder, if Paul Bearer actually was calling a lawyer, does that kind of ruin the mystique of the ministry a little bit more? They're a bunch of badass goths, but even they need quality legal representation. Not nearly as cool, in my humble opinion. So we then head back into the arena, where it is now time for your main event, Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Mankind, with special guest referee Paul White and your WWF champion The Rock at ringside to provide color commentary. So early on in the match, Stone Cold and Mankind brawled on the floor, with Austin proceeding to backdrop Foley onto the commentary table. And with Rock on commentary, he started yelling at Paul White that the big man couldn't be trusted because he just allowed both men to get too close to him. So once again, we're playing up the angle that The Rock and the Big Nasty are at odds. Eventually, though, both men make their way back into the ring, and what follows is actually a pretty solid back-and-forth nine-minute match between these two future Hall of Famers. And regarding Paul White, he spends the majority of the match acting as a completely impartial referee as an angry Rock continues to question his loyalty on commentary. And as I mentioned earlier, Vince McMahon said that Mankind simply had to face Austin tonight in order to become the second guest referee at WrestleMania. Vince did not say that Foley had to beat Austin, just fight him, but I think he meant to say that Foley needs to actually win the match because Rock frequently appears to get pissed at Paul White for not favoring Stone Cold. It's incredibly convoluted, but hey, what else is new? And speaking of convoluted, I'm going to play the ending of the match for you here, so I need you to picture this first. Mankind is standing in the ring while Austin is standing on the apron, and Foley then reaches over the top rope to put Mr. Sacco into Stone Cold's mouth. So, take a listen to what happens next. Sacco missed by half an inch. Stone Cold Stunner missed by another half an inch. These two know each other very well. Austin on the outside. Sacco didn't miss that time. Look at the count. Paul White double time on the count. And look who's outside. He counted on Stone Cold. Take care of all- 
So, in case that wasn't confusing enough to follow, here's what happened. With Stone Cold on the apron, Mankind locked in Mr. Sacco, and Paul White then proceeded to count to ten very quickly. So yes, Stone Cold was counted out while he was standing on the ring apron. I think the only other time I've ever seen that was at WrestleMania 7, when the same thing happened to Ted DiBiase during his match with Virgil. So, uh, I guess there's a precedent there? Sure. So Mankind wins the match, which means that he will now be the second special guest referee at WrestleMania, which you would think would be the exact opposite of what the corporation would want. And then, to muddy the waters even further, once he awards the match to Mankind, Paul White then chokeslams Foley immediately afterwards. Uh Uh-huh. So Vince McMahon then comes down to the ring and attempts to hold Paul White back from attacking Stone Cold, and for some reason... Austin just stares both of them down instead of attacking them. However, that provides The Rock with the opportunity to sneak up on Austin, but Stone Cold quickly dispatches The Rock and clotheslines him over the top rope. We then go off the air with The Rock, Paul White, and Vince McMahon walking up the ramp as the commentators wonder why Vince didn't want Paul White to attack Stone Cold. I've got to say, I have no clue what they were going for with this ending here. They almost made it seem like Vince and Paul White were on Stone Cold's side, since Paul White just allowed Mankind to become the second referee at WrestleMania, and Vince refused to let Austin and White go after each other. Now, obviously, turning Austin heel would make zero sense whatsoever, because Stone Cold is maybe the hottest babyface of all time at this point, so I'm going to go ahead and say this was totally the fault of the booking team. Just a complete mess all around. And honestly, I don't recall if they ever give a reasonable explanation as to Paul White willingly just handed a huge advantage to Stone Cold for the WrestleMania main event. So, uh, I guess we'll find out in the coming weeks then? Maybe? Yikes, what a friggin' mess. I feel like I'm gonna have a stroke just trying to figure this whole thing out, so at this point, the best thing to do is probably to just go to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seas back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin', chickens when they pluckin'. WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap Well, before getting into the ratings, I want to dive into something which I discussed on the previous episode of this podcast. Last week, Raw put up its highest rating of all time, while a very wrestling-heavy episode of Nitro lost by two full ratings points, also an all-time record. So tonight, with Kevin Nash in charge of booking while Eric Bischoff is on vacation, what is his answer to steal some eyeballs away from the WWF? More great wall-to-wall wrestling action? Oh, no, 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 my friends. Instead, tonight's episode of Nitro goes 73 straight minutes until we get our first wrestling match. That's right, over an hour of pre-tapes, vignettes, and interviews before finally broadcasting any actual matches inside of the arena. This actually happened. I know this may sound inconceivable, so I'm going to quickly take you through that matchless first 73 minutes of Nitro so you don't ever have to watch it for yourself. We open with six minutes of Arn Anderson in the locker room trying to talk Ric Flair into taking it easy on his son David, a segment which was already shown on last week's Thunder. 
Ricky Rackman and the Nitro Girls are then shown hosting a Nitro party at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. So that's right, Nitro goes Ivy League. We then get a profile of Nitro Girl AC Jazz, who had a bit of a sad upbringing. Me and my brother and sister have had a, a hard life. My, um, my mother has brought us up. My dad died like when I was at age 10. He got electrocuted. He worked for Georgia Power. And so my mom has really brought us up to be who we are. That's right, fans. AC Jazz's father was zapped to death like Brell in No Holds Barred, except for real. Now who wants to watch some sexy dancing? Continuing on, we get a vignette where Hulk Hogan talked about how Ric Flair is worse than him because Flair didn't even care about losing the love of his own son. And yes, in case you're scoring at home, they're leading toward a double turn where Flair is going heel and Hogan is turning face because that makes sense a mere two months after the finger poke of doom. And by the way, this segment is literally just Hogan talking by himself for six and a half minutes. And after commercial break, we go to more Hogan-y goodness, as he and Kevin Nash are now shown sitting on a couch, watching an entire Ric Flair promo from last week's Nitro and mocking it, Mystery Science Theater 3000 style, except without being remotely funny. And this part goes on for a mere six minutes. From there, we get a truly bizarre segment, where Scott Steiner and Buff Bagwell are driving around in Boston, where they end up getting pulled over by the police. The officers give them two options— either get booked at the police station or become honorary cops for the day and hand out tickets to people. So yes, Steiner and Buff then go through Boston wearing police badges and harassing innocent people. Now this segment only goes on for about two and a half minutes, but with that being said, I wouldn't mind if they did a remake of The Departed with Steiner and Bagwell as Boston police officers. I might need to start a GoFundMe for that one. We then get back-to-back segments where Hulk Hogan and Kevin Nash visit Tori Wilson while she's firing a pistol at a gun range, and then all three of them go out for dinner afterwards. And this goes on for a whopping seven minutes, officially sapping my will to live. And by the way, the WWE Network edits out Conan's three-minute music video at some point in here, too, so they actually spare you some of the pain here. I guess we can thank them for that. So we're now one hour into the show, and they finally queue up the opening credits, and when they come back, we go to the ring where the late, great, mean Gene Okerlund is standing. What, were you, were you expecting a match? <laughs> you're silly, you're silly. Long story short, David Flair and Tori Wilson initially show up before Goldberg comes to the ring and interrupts, which then leads to Ric Flair interjecting and booking Goldberg versus Flair tonight on free TV, which, by the way, turns out to be the only time Goldberg and Flair ever fight each other one-on-one in a televised match in WCW. Glad they got a lot of mileage out of it. And then, at long last, 73 minutes into the show, we get our first match of the evening, Raven versus Hardcore Hack, which just manages to start a few minutes before the D'Lo-Owen Hart match on Monday Night Raw. I mean, wow. I get that Raw is the hottest thing going right now, and it isn't exactly heavy on in-ring content, but there's got to be a happy medium somewhere as opposed to giving us over an hour of pre-taped vignettes with Hogan and Nash, right? Who's booking this shit again? Oh, right. Kevin Nash. Yeesh. And by the way, while all those pre-tapes were going on, they were actually doing three dark matches inside the arena, which means that the good people of Worcester, Massachusetts actually got to watch some wrestling as opposed to the brilliance of, say, Tory Wilson firing a gun. Clearly, those fans missed out. 
So at this point, it's probably a waste of time even recapping the matches, but here you go anyway. In dark match number one, Chavo Guerrero defeated Norman Smiley. In dark match number two, Bam Bam Bigelow defeated Mike Enos, although actually now that I think of it, Tori firing that gun may be more entertaining than that match. In dark match number three, Fit Finley defeated Prince Iakea. And then, getting into the televised matches, Raven vs. Hack ends in a no contest, but they then turn the match into Raven vs. Hack vs. Bam Bam Bigelow, which also ends in a no contest. Chris Jericho defeated Wismark Jr. Brand new Boston police officer Scott Steiner defeated Booker T to retain his World Television Championship. Rey Mysterio defeated Scott Norton. Bret Hart defeated Van Hammer. And, in your main event, the only televised singles match between Goldberg and Ric Flair in WCW ended in a no contest. That seems like a fittingly disappointing end to the night, quite frankly. So now, let's turn to the ratings. Did Kevin Nash's strategy of relying heavily on pre-tapes pay off and get WCW closer to WWF in the ratings? Uh, no. They actually lost by a slightly larger margin than last week, with Raw pulling yet another all-time rating record for them, a 6.46, while Nitro finished with a 4.4. And yes, as I mentioned at the top of this podcast, that week's episode of Sunday Night Heat did a 5.1 rating, more than a half point higher than Nitro. Ouch. Needless to say, things are not looking up for WCW right now. And that leads me to this week's excerpt from the book, The Death of WCW, by R.D. Reynolds and Brian Alvarez. Regarding the wrestling-free hour of Nitro, here is what they had to say. Quote, There's an old belief in wrestling that bookers shouldn't be on-screen talent themselves. It's almost impossible for them to do what's right for business, since what's right for business is usually not them. Virtually everyone in the company believed that Kevin Nash was slowly turning Nitro into a vehicle to get himself over, and since he was smart enough to understand that Hogan, no matter what, was always going to be around, he buddied up with Hulk and built the show around him as well. Nash's first move was to present a Nitro that featured no wrestling in the first hour. None. Not a single solitary match. You might recall that Nitro was a wrestling show. Apparently, Nash thought that wrestling on this wrestling show was unnecessary, and he booked the show like this to prove that they draw the same rating if they had zero matches in the first hour as they would if there were ten. Raw obliterated the show. End quote. It certainly did, fellas. It certainly did. And with that in mind, I think now is the perfect time to segue into the Raw synopsis. So, initially, I was tempted to say this was yet another thumbs-in-the-middle episode, but when I look back on it now... Pretty much everything was entertaining with nothing all that bad to complain about. Well, except maybe for Terry Taylor's commentary, because let's face it, he was pretty terrible, huh? Uh, see what I did there? Uh, uh. But other than that, pretty much the only bad segment was the lunatory quote-unquote match with the subsequent heelish Sable shenanigans. Talk about a tongue twister there. Every other segment on this show was honestly pretty enjoyable, and if you don't believe me, here's a quick list. We had a 9-minute Stone Cold vs. Mankind match on free TV, which is always a welcome sight, even with the stupid nonsensical finish. The Ministry sacrificed the big boss man, followed by The Undertaker setting his symbol on fire and willingly getting himself arrested. The New Age Outlaws reunited for, quote-unquote, one night only. China got hit in the face with the best-looking fireball in wrestling history. Steve Blackman took the Godfather's hose. And, of course, most importantly... Jim Ross kicked Michael Cole right in the dick. I mean, come on, how can you not give that show, at the very least, a mild thumbs up? It would be a sin not to, for Christ's sakes. 
So yes, I would indeed recommend watching this episode of Raw, which is something I sadly have not said in the past few weeks. I tend to accuse the WWF of half-assing the pre-taped episodes, but this is certainly one which I enjoyed. Crash TV almost certainly misses more than it hits, but when it does hit, it's a fast-paced, enjoyable two hours of programming. So go ahead and check this one out if you get a chance. And finally, before we officially wrap things up, here are some notes from this week's issue of The Wrestling Observer. For starters, not to continue to pile on Nitro, but Dave Meltzer writes that it was possibly the worst episode of television ever put on by a major wrestling promotion. So, uh, yeah, he was also not a fan. If he rated individual episodes, I'm guessing he probably would give this one minus five stars. In other not-so-great news for WCW, they failed to sell out Nitro in an arena which seats less than 12,000 people, the first time they've been unable to do that in quite a while. And then the following Thunder taping saw them draw only 4,000 fans to a 15,000-seat arena. Yup, they're definitely on that downward slope now, folks. And speaking of Thunder, some of the few fans who were there started chanting steroids at Scott Steiner, which resulted in Big Papa Pump heading into the crowd and going after a fan. Luckily for WCW, since Thunder is pre-taped, they were able to edit that part out. And speaking of legitimate fights, WCW actually offered $50,000 to an MMA fighter named Mark Coleman, with the idea being that he would come in and lose to Goldberg. However, Kevin Nash shot the idea down because Vince McMahon could theoretically offer Coleman $100,000 to shoot on Goldberg and make him look stupid. Paranoid much, Big Kev? Also, it's kind of funny to hear about a story where Kevin Nash is now all of a sudden looking out for the career of Goldberg. Go figure. Now, you may recall the previous episode of this podcast where Billy Gunn was amusingly removed from an intercontinental title match, with the on-screen reason being that he had asthma. Well, guess what? Meltzer reports that this was actually a shoot because Billy did indeed have fluid in his lungs and a respiratory infection. Although I guess it couldn't have been too bad since he wrestled on Raw tonight, so way to tough it out, Mr. Asthma. Some good and bad news for ECW this week. They've received a recent influx of cash, which means Paul Heyman is actually now able to pay most of his wrestlers, but ECW unfortunately lost their television deals in several major cities this week, including Boston, Chicago, and Atlanta. And to make matters even worse, Mr. ECW himself, Tommy Dreamer, actually did a radio interview where he said that he only has a handshake agreement with Heyman, and if he ever got a serious offer from the WWF or WCW, he would probably jump ship. Ouch. And finally, in somewhat surprising news, despite the fact that we saw her on the pre-taped episode of Raw this week, Luna Vachon has been fired from the WWF. Much like her on-screen character right now, Luna has been complaining backstage about the fact that she isn't getting pushed because she wasn't as pretty as Sable. And, in a fun little tidbit, she apparently challenged Sable's husband Mark Marrow to a fight backstage at St. Valentine's Day Massacre. She had been booked to face Sable at WrestleMania, but, well, those plans have obviously been scrapped. Spoiler alert, though, she will end up returning in the Attitude Era at some point, so don't worry, folks, we haven't seen the last of Luna Vachon. And so, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am, 
Henry Hugepex, the Suplex Throwing Human Duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will now leave you with two clips from television shows which aired during the week of this episode of Raw. The first clip is The Undertaker, guest starring on a show called Poltergeist The Legacy, where he plays a soul-collecting demon from hell, so clearly a big stretch for him. And the second clip is from the television show The Net, which was based off of the 1995 Sandra Bullock movie of the same name. On a previous episode of this podcast, I played a clip from when The Rock made his first acting appearance on that 70s show, which was obviously a more comedic role. Well, this week, he guest-starred on The Net in his first-ever dramatic role as a military training officer named Brody. And it's actually kind of funny to listen to his line readings here, because they're pretty terrible. But lo and behold, 20 years later, he's the biggest movie star in the world. So clearly, he got better. But anyway, enjoy those clips. And I will catch you next time. No way! You don't want me! Oh, yes, I do. Listen to me, there's been a mistake. I should have never been sent down there in the first place. That's not my problem. Just give me a minute. I don't have a minute. No, it's simple. Somewhere along the line, somebody screwed up, and I wasn't supposed to be placed there. So, so you gotta understand, I had to escape. I... Escape? Yeah, escape. A must be punished. No, 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 we're talking about self-defense, not murder. That's where everything gets mixed up. That was wrongly judged. Judgment's not my job. Just retrieval. Please. Can I, can I make a deal? What kind of deal? Anything. Anything. Your brother. Nick? His soul's worth more than yours. You let me have him, and I'll let you go. You've been through two months training. You've got three weeks left. Following graduation, most of us will resume undercover work. That explains the Elvis sideburns. If you are to gain compliance in a physical confrontation, you must do it fast. In about 45 seconds, your strength will drop to 50% of normal, doubling your chances of being beaten or killed. I need a volunteer. Distract, destabilize, and deliver. As the aggressor approaches, distract with your hand, jab kick with your shin just behind and above the kneecap. In a fluid motion, take his wrist, bend his hand forward, apply pressure to the elbow. This will provide leverage in getting him to the ground. If the aggressor still resists, use your body weight by dropping onto his back, knocking the air from his lungs. Can you get any closer? We're gonna need a blood test. Okay, I'm the aggressor. Don't worry about hurting me. Distract. 